Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The following presentation may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. It's early in the morning, and the target has just pulled into his driveway. If you can even call it a driveway. More like a grand entrance. The target, dressed from head to toe in black, makes his way from the SUV to the door of the sprawling mansion. After a few tense minutes, the sun begins to rise over the rolling hills of his Auckland estate, and the command comes in over the line. It's go time. The vans move into position just outside of the property gates and park. The doors slide open, unleashing a swarm of armed men. A few of them jump the side gate. The estate security guard is totally surprised. He has no clue what the hell's happening. The officers disarm and cuff him. The helicopters have taken flight and careen toward the house, one circling the mansion, one of them touching the ground in the gravel roundabout by the front door. Pebbles fly and strike the mansion walls and windows, dinging off supercars parked in the roundabout. Both choppers are mounted with cameras, recording everything, watching scrutinizingly as this raid unfolds second by second just beneath them. Officers armed with automatic assault rifles and bulletproof vests move swiftly to the front and back entrances of the house. The front door is thick, heavy, and isn't caving in easily. It takes several tries and a few men to finally kick it open. They flood in and begin their search. Their first priority is to clear the house, get everyone out ASAP. The family, his associates, and then the giant himself, Kim.com. Someone screams from the other room. Over the line, another officer says it's Mona, Kim's pregnant wife. As they pull her away and out of the house, she asks to see her children. The objective is to find the target. Just keep moving. Where the hell is he? He's impossible to miss. But it's a big house, and he could be anywhere. And who knows if he has a secret underground tunnel, or an escape room, or… One officer passes a framed photograph of the target holding a hunting rifle, leaning against a Mercedes, grinning ear to ear. Could Kim have a weapons room? Could he be locking and loading, getting ready to go down in a bloody blaze of glory? They check the master bedroom. Nothing. The home studio. Nothing there either. The officers were told to secure the target as quickly as possible, that if he had enough time, enough warning, that he would use his system's self-destruct button and the case against him would be destroyed. They could not let that happen. While some officers scrambled to collect as many hard drives and computers as possible, throwing open doors, knocking down hung artwork, tipping sofas and pulling covers off of beds, the others are growing more and more frustrated with every empty room. The target is nowhere to be found, and they're running out of time. Another call over the radio. Someone named Finn has been arrested out back. Finn is apparently in a bathrobe, but they check for weapons anyway. You never know. Second floor now. Agents aren't leaving any corner unchecked, no rug unturned. Up ahead, in an offshoot hallway, one agent bangs on a small door. When nobody answers, he goes to open it, but it's locked. He shoves his weight against it, but it still won't give. 
He calls another agent over to help. Then, both of them kick at the thing until the lock unlodges and they're able to yank it open to reveal a tiny closet. Comically small. This seems out of place, right? The officer pokes his head in, looking for any latches or hinges, but finds none. Then he kneels, wraps his knuckles against the floor. The dense thud that answers back is exactly what you would expect. Big guy's obviously not in there. Let's move. Wait. He knocks on the side wall, the opposite wall, and then the back wall. It's hollow. Holy shit, this must be it. They've found it, the panic room. The officer leans his ear against the wall, but it's much too thick to hear anything happening on the other side of it. They try with all their might to kick it open, but it won't budge. How long's he been in there? Five minutes? 10? If he had a system self-destruct button on him, there's no way he wouldn't have used it by now. Well, there's only one way to find out. On this episode, Big Baller Shot Caller, Celebrities, and the House of Coolness. I'm Keith Corneluck, and this is Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the story of Kim.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey everybody, as a listener of the show, you've heard a lot about the lives affected by cybercriminals. But have you ever wondered, what can I do to protect myself? Then you have to listen to the podcast Privacy Mentor with Carrie Kursky. She'll share with you the latest identity theft, fraud, and cyber threats. But more importantly, simple steps you can take to protect yourself. You'll also hear about real victim stories, interviews, and more. Check it out wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or click the link in the show notes. Privacy Mentor. I think you're going to dig it. Germany, 1992. Kim Schmitz, dressed from head to toe in white, stands out front of a downtown nightclub. The bouncer has to look up at him. At six and a half feet tall and over 250 pounds, he makes the bouncer look like Tyrion Lannister. But size aside, he's being denied entry. He doesn't fit the model of their typical clientele. Behind the towering Kim, a group of college girls with highlights and glitter in their hair roll their eyes and snicker to themselves. The bouncer's adamant, but Kim has something other than size on his side. He has a sharp wit and an endearing sort of charm. The sort of confidence you build over years and years with lots of practice. Flipping on the charisma and turning it up to 11, he chuckles and suggests maybe he's just looking to get in to apply for a security job. Turning to the ladies behind him, he asks who they'd rather want defending them from who, and it's no contest, and now the bouncer's turning red. Soon they formed a circle around Kim, the charismatic Colossus, and he's regaling them with stories of high-profile hacks, internet espionage, and his built-from-scratch money-making racket. 
Kim shoots the bouncer a wry smile behind a pair of massive designer sunglasses. The bouncer lets them all in together. What Kim Schmitz lacked in model good looks, he made up for in his ability to weave a persona. He carefully crafted a character for himself that he managed to wear just like his white suit, tailor-made and perfectly fitted, which takes a lot of confidence and a lot of tact. He knew that he'd never be the chiseled jawline hero, so instead, he decided to take on a role of the witty, party-loving supervillain, a role he leaned into headfirst. Born in 1974, Kim was the perfect age to grow up in the gold rush of personal computers. The late 70s and early 80s saw a boom in computers, both groundbreaking and garbage works of technology the likes had only been seen in science fiction movies. It was a race for the best and cheapest personal computing machine, and it gave rise to a new breed of genius, the computer geek. And when your home life was chaotic and violent, oftentimes a computer was your only means of escape. Kim's father was a brutal alcoholic that took out his aggression on Kim and his mother, Anneli. They eventually divorced, and Anneli immediately began saving up, saving for a computer for her son. Kim had been so fascinated by computers, by their potential, even as a young boy. To Kim, if he had a computer, he could learn it from the inside out. He could conquer it. Why did he need school? Why would he need to grow up to clock in at a job where he'd be stuck in a cubicle? Computers were his way out and up. And soon, he had one of his very own, gifted to him by his mother. And Kim would never be the same. It's the 1980s, and the first thing Kim needs to hack his way out of is his school. Using a telephone hooked up to an acoustic coupler and polytechnic computer, he could essentially turn computer signals into sounds that the phone receiver could understand. Then, once he's hacked his way into the computer, he can access, let's say, his grades. From there, it was cake. Some swift keystrokes and he was passing every class. Once he didn't have to worry about his teachers being on his ass, he could focus on the real money-making hacks, one of which also included telephones. Once, he bragged about when he grew up and got into nightclubs. On the club scene, he gravitated toward the promoters, the dancers, and the models, the top-shelf bottle buyers who had their own tables, and he would regale them with the stories of his internet exploits. This was the decade of swimming in and bookended by internet lore, especially in Hollywood. War games, sneakers, hackers, the net, and of course, the Matrix, just to name a few. The internet was new and exciting, and Kim had not only jumped into the deep end, starting at a young age, he learned to conquer it. At least that's what he told people. For as mythic and feared as the internet still was, it was equally as mysterious. So when Kim Schmitz told those dancers and promoters at the German nightclubs that he hacked into the American Pentagon, into NASA, had reduced the credit ratings of global kajillionaires to smoldering zeros, sold private corporate phone numbers, and ran a more mainstream online bulletin board called House of Coolness, who were they to start questioning him on details? For all they knew, this guy was a black hat master wizard. But that status would come later, because only some of the things were ever proven to be true, and it would cost Kim his freedom. House of Coolness was not just a clumsy name for a website. It was, as Kim touted, a type of sharing platform and a message board, a site to trade shareware and freeware, as he described it. But of course, when you're running a software pirating board, you don't go around saying as much. On House of Coolness, there was a cost of entry. 
You either paid for the service, or you uploaded as much valuable content as you downloaded. It was an incentive for users to share more valuable content. And the more valuable the content, the more you could download valuable content. There were even nicknames for each kind of user. Elites, who shared the good content, and lamers, or those who had to pay to use the site. Talk about incentive. The issue with House of Coolness and its incentivizing was that users began using it to trade pirated software with one another. So between pirate users filling up the site with visits and the lamers who paid through the nose for a chance to download the illegal software, the site was quite lucrative. And then there was the PBX phone scam. For all of you born after the widespread popularity of cell phones that could fit in your pocket, there used to be a whole national system dedicated to the landline. Back in the day, there was such a job as a phone operator who would connect calls, answer questions, log data, filter incoming and outgoing messages, etc. Basically, a human switchboard, which is where the term came from. Operators would manually connect calls on a giant switchboard by unplugging and reconnecting phone lines the same way you'd plug a guitar into an amp. So think of a PBX like a mechanical switchboard for a private company or organization to share and make phone calls internally. There'd be specific codes that the company would use to connect calls, access messages, and all the like. Kim Schmitz was able to hack those systems, gain those codes, and he sold them to the highest bidders, essentially selling free phone minutes. It was lucrative, yes, but it wasn't exactly subtle. And it was this hack that caught the attention of a well-known German anti-piracy lawyer and landed him in real trouble for the first time. The lawyer, named Gunter, was apparently hot on the trail of copyright infringers all over the country, and the House of Coolness had been on the top of the hottest sites for pirates. So when Kim found out he was in hot water, he allegedly made a deal with Gunter, swapping names for other pirate site owners for a lighter sentence, and apparently some extra cash on the side. When it miraculously worked out for Kim, you'd think he'd be cool with it and lay low until the heat blew over, and eyes were off of him before he made his next illegal move. Or maybe he'd learned his lesson, having almost been caught and walked the straight and narrow from now on. But Kim got cocky. Oftentimes, getting away with something bad feels better than doing the bad itself. And before long, he went from selling stolen minutes to stolen numbers. It was too blatant a crime, too easy to trace back to him, and he got caught yet again. In 1996, a judge sentenced Kim to two years probation, saying that these were the actions of a rebellious youngster. But not only did Kim serve just about three months for good behavior, jail wasn't quite the roadblock it was for most of us. In fact, when he got out, he banked on the fact that he was now a convicted hacker. Bad news for most, Great news for the man who wore his villainy like a flashy cape. Kim Schmitz had a plan. The call went something like this. You run a thriving, multi-million dollar business and have begun the move to a digital presence in earnest. You buy more computers every day and more and more of your company exists online. There's a guy on the line, some kid, and he's asking you if your digital assets are safe. If you've taken the proper precautions to safeguard them against hackers, you scoff a little, wondering if the next question out of his mouth will be about your refrigerator and if it's running or not. You go to hang up when he mentions that phone scam you heard about in the news earlier that year, some hacker who got busted for breaking into companies' PBX systems. Then he hits you with the sucker punch. 
He tells you something he shouldn't know, recites a top-secret contract from one of your company's most valuable clients, word for word, from the top, and your heart falls into your ass. Whoever this is, he has your attention now. Who the hell is this? Well, I'm the hacker you want on your side. Keep your enemies closer. This was the sales pitch, and it worked. Soon, it was Kim's phone that was ringing off the hook. He had very quickly become a hot commodity. He'd charge upwards of 340,000 marks, equivalent to a little over 200,000 US dollars per consultation. And he had lots of clients. Companies from all over the world were asking for Kim, asking for the help of the genius hacker who was now using his powers for good, or so he claimed. It was this money and his growing reputation that he used to help get his own startups off the ground, a tech business installing firewalls into company computer systems to help protect and warn against hackers. Other grand ideas turned patents that he would sell off to the highest bidder. Ideas like Megacar, a software system put into cars for video conferencing while on the go, a radical new idea at the time. Plus, he liked to consider himself a type of angel investor. For example, he bought tons of cheap stock in the failing letsbuyit.com, which was basically Amazon before Amazon existed, and he said he wanted to save the company. Well, when people heard that, they invested. Kim knew what he was doing. If anybody knew tech and tech business, it was this guy. So let's go all in. But then, Kim changed his mind and sold all of his stocks, stocks that had skyrocketed in value. It seemed that everything Schmidt touched turned to gold. He was making money hand over fist. Kim truly seemed to be using his mystique and skill to make big moves in the tech world, to innovate and push the hacker narrative, his narrative into a new light, a globally recognized and maybe even respected narrative. So what does a power-hungry hacker genius with a colorful and textured reputation and a pension for flamboyance do with all his money and fame? He turns to his closest and most trusted hacker pals and polishes off an old idea. That's what. Let's go back to the year 2005. Weezer dropped their first hit, Beverly Hills. Steve Carell got his chest waxed in 40-year-old Virgin. God of War is played for the first time all around the world and humanity is introduced to what will eventually become one of the biggest social media and entertainment platforms ever, YouTube. This was the beginning of the sharing movement. You saw something online, heard a song you liked, bought your favorite movie online, and wanted to share it. Nowadays, this is just as simple as tapping your screen, the modern equivalent of passing a note in class. We hardly even think about it. But keep in mind, YouTube is just getting off the ground. The world isn't used to it yet, and it exists in its most rudimentary form. Also, this was three years before Dropbox would see the light of day. If you wanted to share something larger than a photograph, you had to wait a while for it to load into your email or instant messenger, and then wait longer for it to actually be sent in full. It wasn't a huge problem, but it was hugely annoying. And Kim capitalized on that. Hence, Mega Upload was born. Mega Upload was, essentially, House of Coolness on steroids, a sharing platform. But instead of sharing entire videos or songs, Kim had the genius idea to share links. I know, right? Those links could be hosted elsewhere. Instead of sending the whole damn house, just send someone the keys. At the time, this was a newer idea, an idea very few people had exploited in a successful way. 
Not until Kim Schmitz, that is. Mega Upload was a success, not just because Kim was a master at marketing his idea, but mostly because it worked, and it worked well. It was now easier than ever to share huge files, to download music, TV shows, movies, hundreds of thousands of documents, and do it all quickly. Simply pay for your storage space and have at it. It raked in buckets of money and put Kim Schmidt at the forefront of global awareness, which he believed was the perfect time to make another slightly more personal branding move. Around the launch of Mega Upload, Kim Schmidt legally changed his name to Kim.com, officially, permanently, and quite literally embracing his mega tech persona. But the more friends and notoriety you gain, the more enemies you make, the more suspicion you garner. And Kim.com and Mega Upload were beginning to catch the eye of people on both sides of the legal line. The other shoe was about to drop, but not before he had a little bit of fun. A luxury yacht, stuffed to capacity and then some, literally making waves in the harbor from all the people jumping to the beat of the music, colored lights flash and dance across the night sky, and the stink of sweat and booze could be smelled from the shore. This is a classic Kim.com party, and everyone who's anyone is in attendance. The photographers and videographers are having a field day. There's a tabloid-worthy snapshot at every conceivable angle. Models swarming the rooftop pool in the latest round of a wet t-shirt contest. Champagne bottles being sprayed instead of hoses. Soccer stars and hip-hop up-and-comers mingling near the bar, each with a $700 bottle of their favorite sat beside them quickly emptying their glasses. And of course, there's Kim.com himself, leaning in and chatting with, Jesus Christ, is that Bruce Willis? How many of these people did .com personally know? Maybe five or six? But it wasn't about surrounding himself with friends, it was about surrounding himself with status. Every picture with a celebrity, topless model, or famous rocker would be uploaded to Kim's personal website for the world to see and envy. They saw a man among the stars in Kim.com, a celebrity. And the best part was, he was approachable. Not some Adonis with an attitude, but a giant teddy bear with a passion for internet freedom. Being the son of an abusive, alcoholic father, he didn't even drink. He was a genuine success story, a real entrepreneur, a sort of nerd hero accepted by everyone. Well, almost everyone. Because while Kim.com hosted his parties and bought his fancy cars and inflated his status, some entertainment giants in Hollywood were getting good and pissed. You see, Mega Upload, like its baby brother before it, House of Coolness, was prone to some shady dealings. In other words, it was now very, very easy to upload and share copyrighted works freely and with relatively secure encryption on your side. Because if users and senders didn't have to host or send the copyrighted material themselves, they could remain under the radar. Going back to the house and keys metaphor, it's a lot harder to nail the person who has the copy of a house key than the person who actually owns the house. Those songs and TV episodes and movies that people were flinging back and forth across the internet were getting flung at zero cost to the consumer, and the industry suits did not like that idea. Maybe some of our younger listeners won't remember this, but back when you would watch a DVD, there'd be some legal slides before the film would play. And one of those was a somewhat aggressive anti-pirating short film, complete with a hard techno rock and jittery punk lettering. You wouldn't steal a car, would you? You wouldn't steal a purse, would you? Piracy is a crime. 
it was a lot, but industry giants figured it was their best deterrent from would-be pirates using sites like Mega Upload, the thorn in their collective asses. Then, Kim.com unleashed his own little videos. Label execs watched in horror as their own contracted talent, stars like Will I Am, Kanye West, Demi Moore, Alicia Keys, Snoop Dogg, Kim Kardashian for God's sake, went on camera promoting Mega Upload in a slick promo video. I use Mega Upload. I trust Mega Upload. I love Mega Upload. 2007. Sarah Longgrad is sitting outside the university cafeteria, grunting at her laptop in frustration. When the 15th declined message banks onto her screen, she lets her hands catch her face and the moan that falls out of it. Her professor just so happened to be walking by at that exact moment. He asked her what's wrong and she says, nothing. That with so many unexpected expenses the past month, there isn't enough in her account to keep her last four episodes of her favorite TV show. The only thing keeping her sane through finals. What show? Breaking Bad. Oh god, I love that show. Just watch it on Mega Upload. What the hell is that? She asks him, and he tells her. It's this great place where you can essentially stream TV, movies, and music for free. Because before Netflix started streaming, there was Mega Upload. It was a worst-case scenario for the entertainment industry. And they weren't about to take it lying down. The call went something like this. A Hollywood executive. Hey, Mr. President. Look, I don't know if you've heard about this douchebag overseas who calls himself .com and built his super illegal pirating website, but you should know about him now. Because I want you to take him down as quickly and as forcefully as you possibly can, or else you can kiss all of your campaign funding and the little treats from us over here in Hollywood goodbye. And I mean it. Do what we want, or you'll be sorry. Capiche? Okay, maybe that's not exactly what happened. But Motion Picture Association chairman Chris Dodd knew the power he wielded, knew that here in America, Hollywood was a behemoth with all the money in the world, and he used that power to apply pressure to the throat of Washington, D.C. And D.C. understood the assignment loud and clear. After Dodd and Hollywood essentially threatened the U.S. government, the feds here in the States began their investigation of Kim and his supposed illegal site, and what they found was that tons of users were pirating media, like tons of them. And they concluded that Kim not just knew about it, but actually incentivized the illegal activity. But how? I mean, it's not like Kim.com would have been stupid enough to put a big old black and white skull and crossbones flag on the header of his website with big bold text that said, share pirated shit here beneath it. And more to the point, how are they going to prove that Kim didn't actually want to run a legit site? The U.S. was making the claim that .com built the site specifically to profit off pirated material, but pirating had been going on for like ever. It's always been a thing. The argument against the feds was the question of whether they would arrest the person who built the highways instead of the drunk idiots who drove on them. How could Kim.com be responsible for what his users did on his website? The thing is, it's hard to shake a bad guy persona once you've committed yourself to it, especially the audacious kind of bad guy Kim.com liked to play. Rolls-Royce vanity plates that read VILLAIN in black letters. His personal website littered with photos of himself in all black, touting huge guns, standing in front of a badly photoshopped background image of burning money. 
burning American money. The feds didn't have to work hard at all to make Kim out to be a villainous hacker. He'd done that all by himself. While traveling in the Philippines in 2007, Kim met Mona. They were married in 2009. She was 19 when she met the 33-year-old Kim. It was, as she described, a Cinderella story. They shared similar rough childhoods, littered with abuse. The internet tycoon was more than just an escape for Mona. She's said to have described Kim as a safe place, emotional stability. She was a petite model, Kim towering over her in every photograph they shared. But she humbled him. Kim was on his way to becoming a family man. By 2012, they'd had three children together and all lived happily on a gigantic estate in Auckland, New Zealand, their own little castle in their own little kingdom. But little did they know that their fairy tale life was about to be turned upside down and inside out. Because the American government was in cahoots with New Zealand and they had big plans to tear Kim.com down. Meanwhile, Dotcom and his buddies at Mega were in talks about how to get ahead of all this piracy talk that's been going around. They wanted to expand their business. I mean, now that Netflix and Hulu are getting a corner on the market, they think they can offer some stiff competition. Why not have their own streaming service? Call it Megaflix or Mega Movies or something. And why stop there? Why not Mega Picks for photos? Mega Stream for gaming? Mega Help for charitable giving? Mega Porn for. Well, you know. The point is, the sky's the limit. And they already had a head start by having been the illegal Netflix for quite some time. All they had to do now was get in bed with the industry that actively hated them, make some deals, and see if they couldn't make it beneficial for everyone involved. Right? Build an empire. That was the plan, anyway. But then came January 2012. It's been 15 minutes since law enforcement descended on the dot-com mansion like a plague, and they think they've finally found Kim's hiding spot, behind a hidden door, in a small, nondescript closet on the second floor. You know, you'd think he would have been with his pregnant wife and kids, right? You really think he's hiding out in here? Well, only one way to find out. It takes several attempts and lots of manpower, but they finally get the panic room open. They're greeted with a winding staircase. They fly up the steps and out into the sprawling white room with bright red carpet. They spread out, and of course, within seconds, they spot him, trying to hide behind a pillar in the rear of the room. He turns to face them, face plaid and drenched in sweat, hands in the air. Before they get to him, he drops to his knees, surrendering to the officers. What other choice does he have? As they drag the giant tech tycoon to a police vehicle, he asks after his family, if they're all right, if they're being ha- He stops mid-sentence as he crosses the gravel roundabout and sees his supercars being hauled up onto a truck, a grease monkey type with a bulletproof vest tightening the last straps on a vintage 1950s pink Cadillac. Two officers shove him into the police van, pat the roof, and he's off. They finally have Kim.com in custody. The case against Kim.com and Mega Upload was dense, and the allegations didn't only include copyright infringement, they threw on racketeering, money laundering, tax fraud, and even child pornography into the mix as well. On top of it all, the US was itching to get Kim extradited to the States to face trial against Hollywood, where they would surely tear him to ribbons. 
the industry knew that Kim would hire the very best lawyers, wouldn't just take all of this heat and then turn the other cheek. Nope. He'd try to fight each and every accusation, so their strategy was essentially a flurry of attacks, hoping that if there were enough terrible allegations, that some would stick, and Kim would go away for a very, very long time. They didn't just want to knock him to the ground, they wanted to kick him while he was down. Kim made bail and was released to await trial. He got to reunite with his wife, got to be there for the birth of his twins, got to go back home. It also gave him time to hire the very best lawyers money could buy and to gather up his legal defense. And what he came to court with wasn't just a good argument, it was pretty damning for the New Zealand and US governments. Sloppy and possibly illegal execution of his search warrant, mishandling of information, illegal spying, and what self-destruct button? There was never any such thing. It sounded to Kim like somebody was watching way too many James Bond films. But all of this chaos, the tangle of the legal red tape and horrible accusations, it wasn't something Kim could just throw under a yacht and party away. But he could do what he does best, build a narrative. Kim.com became the leading voice of internet freedom. He came out in front of the news of his alleged criminal activity by giving his side of the story. The small-time hacker turned nerd hero success story, and before long, he began to gain supporters. He even helped start a political party in New Zealand. The Internet Party stood not just for internet freedom, but internet privacy. Kim knew what an overly invasive government looked and felt like. And who better to get people riled up about getting spied on than the guy the Prime Minister himself had apologized to? Kim used that same charisma he utilized at those German nightclubs in the 90s to win over the crowd yet again. Today, he's seen as a Robin Hood type, a tech folk hero who won't stand idly by while the man spies on the good and innocent people of New Zealand, hell, of the world. He'll fight for the rights of internet users, of hackers good and bad, no matter who he pisses off in the process. And you either love him or you hate him. Kim and Mona divorced in 2012, and he remarried in 2018 to a woman named Elizabeth Donnelly. The internet party never won any elections. Mega Upload was seized by the US government and taken offline. And Kim is still in the legal thick of it, but he's not giving up. Extradition has been unsuccessful up to this point, and he still resides in New Zealand. He's still fighting for internet rights, or at least his internet right to start another company on his terms, because he's still going at it. You can visit the new Mega, a cloud storage site with ultra-encrypted security and apparently great customer reviews. However, there's a slightly new spin on it now. You see, they've made it so encrypted that even the owners of the site can never see what their customers use the site for, and therefore can't be held liable. At least, that's what Kim's lawyers say anyway. But who knows, if Kim.com's track record holds, there's bound to be something crazy happening real soon. Whether it's a headline worthy of a star-studded yacht party, or an international law enforcement takedown, only time will tell. I'm Keith Corneluck, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast app right now so you don't miss an episode. This show's an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. Tell your friends, your enemies, tell the Kardashians at their next house party. 
And another way to support us is on Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show, plus monthly bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluk. This episode is written and researched by Dimitri Correno, edited, mixed, and mastered by Greg Bernhard, a.k.a. Thin on Top, but Bushy Down Below. The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, at modemmischief, and slide into our DMs. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.